Hi, Explorers. My name is Daniel Levin. Last week, I was invited to speak to a group of New York City public school students to answer their questions about COVID-19. I had specifically been avoiding an episode on that subject because it's literally and figuratively everywhere right now. And I wanted this podcast to be a reprieve from the stress and anxieties of the rest of the information environment. However, if there is a non-stressful way to talk about this disease, I'm pretty sure I just experienced it. The students' questions were insightful, creative, and reflected the national dialogue in many ways, but with an openness, honest curiosity, and bluntness that is rare in most public discourse. It was too adorable not to share. So this week's episode is brought to you by my close friend, public school teacher Michael Ramirez, and his class of seven-year-olds from New York City. Almost every house in the, on this street is made out of wood. And you should be getting a lot of splinters. No, the wood is... The wood is nice, and if one time my mom found a broken a broken plank in the floor, and she put a rug over it, it's a really nice rug. I go to my friend's house sometimes, up, which is upstate. I sometimes don't wear shoes on the porch, but I get a lot of splinters, like thousands of splinters on my feet, like way more than ten. And my mom has to, I have to sit down, and my mom has to pick all of them out. All right, good morning. It's 9.33 on this, on my clock. The New York City Department of Education has closed all public school buildings in the city to facilitate physical distancing and help slow the pandemic spread. Like many businesses, the city schools have shifted operations to online virtual spaces. In this case, a classroom comprised of about 20 different apartments spread around Brooklyn. The abrupt transition was strange, but both these students and their teacher have taken it in stride demonstrating the adaptability and resilience so characteristic of the city itself. So let's see some answers to the morning question. Rosie's feeling tired. Vera's feeling calm. Taiji's feeling good. Zintra's pretty good. I'm sorry I'm blurry. I can't unblur myself. Um, Kennedy's feeling hyper. Let's see, Violet's got cold and tired and excited, mixed, mixed I haven't feelings. been in a lower school classroom in many, many years, but even in this virtual form, it feels familiar and comforting. In this one, the day begins with a morning meeting, and one element of this is their mood meter. This is something they do every day as part of a longitudinal social and emotional curriculum called RULER, or Recognizing, Understanding, Labeling, Expressing, and Regulating Emotions. This is developed from research from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and trains students to recognize and express emotions in a non-judgmental and healthy way. At this stage, students are asked to name their emotions and place them on a graph of energy level versus pleasantness. Each section of the graph is associated with a color that helps represent the emotions. By this point in the year, the students are well practiced with this and are simply typing their emotions or colors into the chat box of the virtual classroom. Does anyone else have an outfit that they'd like to share for Spirit Week? Even though things are online, the teachers still strive to keep things engaging and entertaining for the students. This is school Spirit Week. The teachers have encouraged the students to dress up as the essential worker of their choice. Vera, let's see Vera's outfit. Let's see. My mom Spirit forced Week me outfit. to put on a random outfit. She said I was basically my supposed to be my music teacher. Oh, cool. That's great. A music teacher outfit. I'm a grocery worker and uh, I'm having like this blue apron under just like regular clothes, like a shirt and a skirt. 
So that's basically just what I'm, what I'm at, I, what I have right now. But I'm gonna put on some more things later. George, did you have an outfit? Yeah. Similar theme to Zintra. Love it. At high tai Gi. I dress up as a thin man. I'm thin. <laughs> thin. Okay, I'm thin. not. I'm not sure if that's on theme. Thin for the essential workers, but I do love your outfit and I especially love your enthusiasm, buddy. All right, we are going to start our scheduled interview. It is Friday, May 8th, and it's 9.46 a.m. on my clock, and I'm here for a special remote lesson uh, featuring my close friend, Dr. Dana Levin. Um, yesterday, we prepared some questions, which you can see posted in the stream for our Google Classroom. I proofread and I organized them into different categories. And so we're gonna start real quick, uh, just asking, uh, just with a quick welcome and introduction. Dr. Dana, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from? I've been isolating in the same apartment with Michael and his partner, Rebecca, since the beginning of this outbreak. Today, we've set up a recording studio on the kitchen table, while Rebecca, who works in real estate fabrication, is making herself breakfast in the kitchen a few steps away. It's a stark reminder of how work life and home life have been bizarrely mashed together by this pandemic. So we're gonna work our way through these questions. And Violet and Rayshawn and Akila all ask a very similar question. We're gonna have Violet read the question. Violet, can you read out loud your question to Dr. Dana? How many people go to the emergency room a day? That's a really great question. And I would say that it changes depending on the day and depending on the emergency room. So for our emergency room on a normal day, we are seeing somewhere between 150 and 200 people in every hour. So we have probably about uh, five or 700 people that show up in the emergency room in a day, sometimes more, sometimes less. We've been seeing recently uh, about half that volume and then or less. And then actually before that, in the worst part of all of this, we were seeing about three quarters to two thirds of that volume. So maybe only seeing about 400 people or even, even less than that uh, during, the, during the lowest points and more likely around 600 people during the, uh, during the peak. Okay, so on a normal day you see 500 to 700? Somewhere around there, somewhere around. And uh, during the outbreak, we see about half of that, which is between like 250 and 300. Mm -hmm. And then during the worst part of it, we're actually seeing even, we're seeing less than that or we're seeing a little bit more than that? A little bit more than that. A little, a little bit more. Okay. So why is it that during the outbreak, we're seeing less people in the emergency room than before the outbreak? Well, what happened is we told everybody to be really careful coming to the ER and we tried to keep as many people away as we could. Uh, and a lot of people were frightened to come in. So some people that needed to come in had to stay home and some people that didn't need to come in stayed home voluntarily. And that was really helpful for us because it, it made the ER a lot less crowded so we could handle some of the sickest patients, which were really sick. So it sounds like people were being a little bit more careful coming to the ER and only coming in if they were very, very sick. Yeah, mostly. Some people, some people probably should have come in 
and uh, and that's that's unfortunate. But they were really trying hard to take care of everybody else in the community, and they the best way that they knew how to do that was to stay home, even when they were sick enough that they needed to be there. And a lot of people are calling their doctors now. Right? They are, yeah. We we also put uh, together a telemed program, and not a lot like what we're doing here, where. They, people will be able to call their physicians or even the emergency room through an application. And you just put a, push a button on your phone and you're talking to a doctor just like we are talking right now. And you would have your entire medical visit through your computer screen. Okay, so Vera, are you on? Can you please unmute your microphone, Vera? Yes. Hi, Vera. Your question is up next. Can you see it on the screen? Yep. Okay, go ahead and ask. What is it like to be working on people to have, that have COVID-19? That's also a good question. I would, it also depends on the patient. Most of them have a bad cold. They just have cough or fever and they just don't feel good. So it's really not that bad. It's not stressful. It's a lot like working with any patient during the cold and flu season. Some of them are very sick um, and they require a lot of support where we have to give them oxygen or we have to give them medicines to keep their blood pressure up and, uh, medic and medicines to control their fever. And some people are even sick enough that they can't breathe on their own and we have to put a, a, connect them to a machine that will breathe for them. And we keep them sedated because those machines can be kind of uncomfortable to be on. Okay, great question. Um, let's see, Rosie, are you on Rosie? I'm Mr. Ramirez today. <laughs> oh, hold on. We got to see that. Let's let's pin that. Hold on one second. We're going to interrupt our normally scheduled <laughs> program to see that. Let's pin Rosie and see that. Hold on. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> to give you the visual here, Rosie has dressed up with a flannel button-down shirt, glasses that are way too big for her face, and has smeared brown makeup on her chin and upper lip in a rough but clear approximation of a mustache and beard. She looks like Mr. Ramirez, and both of them are now giggling uncontrollably. <laughs> she looks more like you than you do. That's funny. That's great, Rosie. You did a great job. <laughs> Please send me a picture of that later. All right. Wow. That made my day. I got tears in my eyes. <laughs> okay, Rosie, you asked a couple of questions, and I want you to read them out. And I think Dr. Dana kind of talked a little bit about some of these, but I, I'd like to hear... I'd like to hear you read these questions and see if there's any more information that's important. Go ahead, Rosie. Wow. The first one was, what does it look like when people have the coronavirus? Oh, that's a question that a lot of people are trying to answer right now uh, because it, it can be very variable. Some people don't show any signs and they look the same as everyone else. Some people have just a mild cough or a sore throat and or fever, uh, and some people are really having trouble breathing. Uh, others have uh, issues with nausea, their, their stomach doesn't feel good, um, and some people, have, uh, may, some people may have issues with skin problems. We're seeing some issues that look like there are skin issues that show up with this disease. But most of them, most of them look fine. They just look like they're a little sick. They have a fever and sore throat and all that stuff that I'm sure all of us have experienced at some point. So it sounds like it looks different depending on the person, and uh, maybe that's important why we're trying to develop those tests that we can take. 
Yeah, and it's a big question of who's going to become really sick, who's going to recover, how do we find it when people don't have symptoms. That's a big question that a lot of researchers on my team and all over the world are looking at. So that's a really, that's a really valuable question. Right. Rosie, can you ask your second question? Do you use um, machines to get the coronavirus out of the body, or do you do something else? Mm. Well, it's a virus, and we don't have machines that pull viruses out of bodies. Like, that would be something that a lot of people are looking into also. But for now, what we're doing is relying on the body mostly to heal itself. So when you get sick, most of the time you can heal yourself. Sometimes you need a little bit of support to get you through that so that you can heal yourself. And that's what we try to do. So even the machines we connect people to, they don't remove the virus. All they're doing is making it a little easier for that person to breathe or to uh, live with their fever before, so that they themselves can heal. And we're all looking for ways that we can help fix this. And there are some medications that we're testing that uh, they're, they're not machines, but they're medicines that can help the body fight off this infection. And we're looking at a lot of different strategies on how the best way to, on what the best way to do that is. But it's not a machine. It's not quite like what you're thinking of. I don't have like a pliers that I can stick into somebody, grab a coronavirus and pull it out. There's just too many of them. Maybe that will be a future thing, uh, a sci-fi thing in the moment. But yeah, definitely interesting to hear that the body is the most, uh, your, your own body is the strongest fighting force we have against the coronavirus and all the other viruses. But it's a good question. I would, I would uh, if you have a thought about a machine that might do it, Maybe you could propose that and we could find ways to Start test it. Start researching. I love it. That's how science works. All right, Ray Sean, I have your question up on the screen. Can you go ahead and ask your question? Okay. When is a vaccine going to be done? Also an excellent question that a lot of people are asking. Um, well, I can tell you that the fastest we've ever made a vaccine from isolating the virus to delivering it to people is four years. But that was done over 50 years ago, and we've come a long way since then. So it's, it's reasonable to assume that we will be able to do that in half that time or less. But that vaccine is still months or maybe even years away. So it sounds like uh, it's almost like a race, like we're competing yeah. with race, like uh, the fastest record, world record was four years, but that's kind of an old world record. And it seems like we're all in a race to try to figure that out. and and get that ready for people. And it sounds like with our new technologies, it'll definitely be much faster. Yeah, I mean, the average vaccine takes somewhere between 10 and 15 years to bring to market, but we have to be really careful with them because a vaccine, like everything else, is medicine. So we have to make sure that one, it works, and two, it doesn't cause any harm to people. And we do a lot of testing to make sure that that's the case before we're comfortable giving it to people. Great question, Rayshawn, thanks. Let's see. Now, we have a couple questions about PPE, which stands for Personal Protective Equipment. When you work with people who have COVID, do you only wear face masks or other stuff? It's a, it's a really useful question because it was a big thing early on as to what we needed to wear. And the answer to it is that we use a collection of equipment, which we have some of here. Um, the first layer is I wear scrubs. These are, clothing, these are clothes that I don't normally wear home or, uh, or on the street, we wear these in the hospital so that I can get these dirty and I can take them off before I can bring them out. Um, additionally, I wear a set of gloves 
We usually put on a set of, of uh, special gloves that protect my hands and protect the patient so that I don't get my hands or the patient dirty with other things. I will put on two types of masks. And the first of those, I'm going to take these headphones off. Um, the first of those masks is one that I would use for doing procedures that are particularly dangerous for spreading the virus. And that's because this mask, it's called an N95, has a lot of tiny little holes, very small holes, that can filter out even, even, if, I, even if I walked into a cloud of virus, it'll filter out almost all of it. So that one goes on like this. And then the next thing I will do is I'll put on a set of goggles, and I'll show you the other mask in addition to it. But I'll put on a set of goggles to protect my eyes because the eyes can also get infected sometimes if I'm spraying it. I get a lot of virus. This is when I'm working directly with patients, like somebody coughing in my face or if I'm blowing air into their, into their, their lungs. And then the other mask that I wear, which looks a little funny when you put them both on, is this mask, which is just a, a regular surgical mask. The holes in this mask are not quite as small as the holes in the other mask, but I wear this because it'll help protect the N95 mask from getting contaminated. And that means that I can reuse that mask. I don't know if you remember, but there was a little while where we were having a real concern about running out of protective equipment. So in the beginning of that, we came up with this strategy so that we could reuse the more, the, the, the more intense mask because we had to deal with a lot of really sick patients and people were coughing on us all the time. So I put this mask on to protect the N95, and I put the N95 on to protect me. Okay. And then I'll usually wear a gown or something else that I can take off so I don't get the scrubs as dirty, so I can move between patients' rooms. So N95, that's not a company or... Uh, one kind, that's like a class of masks, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a okay. class of masks. There's a whole bunch of different kinds. Uh, this is just one of them. The one that I have here is an example of another N95. I know that because it says N95 on it, and I've seen some of these out and about. Um, so Dr. Dana has the N95 and then another mask over that to keep that one clean and safe. Taiji quickly commented that he looked a little bit like a duck. Mm -hmm. Which is funny to me because if I was sick in the hospital, I might be scared a little bit. And then in comes in Dr. Quack Quack over here might make me laugh a little bit. We actually call these duck bills because they look like duck masks. That's great. Great observation, Taiji. But yeah, all N95 means is it filters out 95% of those tiny little particles. That's all it means. No, 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 no. You need to get more. You need to get more. It needs to, it needs to filter out a you know what, uh, Taiji, I, I encourage you to work on that engineering project because if we start making masks that are N99 and N100 and filter out all of it, I think that that At would be At this point, Taiji begins to explain his plan to design masks, gowns, and clothing impregnated with hand sanitizer to keep people safe on the streets. He also wanted to invent a COVID-fighting robot. 
The audio here gets a bit garbled because it's hard to convince a group of seven-year-olds to keep themselves on mute, so I've recorded this explanation myself, but I figured that will also help protect his future intellectual property. That sounds like a, like a really interesting plan. Um, I love the energy. I want to make sure that we have enough time. It's a little bit after 10 o'clock. I want to make sure that we have enough time to get through all the questions. Kennedy, are you on? Can you unmute yourself? Hi. You asked so, this question here. I asked, what tools do you use and is it comfortable? Well, we try to make the tools we use as comfortable as possible, uh, at least to use them. I would say that the, the protective equipment we wear, some of the masks are more comfortable than others. None of them are something I would really like wearing. I have to wear them for about 12 hours at a time. It means I can't drink or eat anything while I have the mask on. Um, it's very hot. It's uncomfortable that way. The, most of the tools that we use to treat this disease are we have beds, we have monitors that tell me how well the patient's doing. Uh, I use a stethoscope to listen to people's lungs. We'll use blood pressure cuffs to check their vital signs. Uh, one of the most important ones is this little finger thing that we use called a pulse oximeter, where I put a finger inside this and it gives me a reading on how well that person's uh, blood is getting oxygen. So that gives me some sense of how well their lungs are working. And in this case, can you read that number? 81, well, there's two numbers. I see 80 and I see 98. And the numbers are kind of going up and down a little bit. So the top number, that number that he was saying that says 80 is my heart rate. That one now says 77. And the lower number is a measure of how well my, my, my uh, blood is getting oxygen. So should be 100 or 98, that's pretty good. If it's low, then I know that their lungs aren't working very well, and I may need to support them by giving them extra oxygen or breathing for them. And that's one of the ways that we've been using to treat this disease. Um, but there's a lot of tools, and there's a lot of people. Like, some of those are x-rays, some of those are lab laboratory equipment where people are doing chemistry tests to help us understand what's going on. It's, we're trying to use tools that allow us to see things that are invisible. And that's the big challenge of this disease. It's, it's invisible, and we have to work to try to understand things that are happening when I can't see them or feel them or hear them. So I use the tools to extend what, my, what I can normally do with my own hands and eyes and ears, and, I, uh, and that way I can understand a little bit better about what's going on within the human body. Reminds me of what we talked about earlier where we said that the, the biggest, strongest fighting force uh, against this disease and most diseases is your own body and it sounds like the doctors are working hard to kind of be a cheerleader and a support for your own body that's a really cool cool way to put it the body knows what it wants to do and my job is when it when i only step in when the body can't do the things that it needs to do that's it pretty cool stuff let's see taiji was talking yesterday about his mask getting hot taiji can you talk a little bit about that and i pulled your question up here Yeah, yeah, it gets I very hot. You just put one on your face and put rest of them on your body, because because you could just wear your your um you could just wear it instead of a sweater. Just go up in your pajamas, wear wear that, and then you won't you be virus a hundred percent free. Well, that's that's kind of what we do. I don't have the gowns with me right now, but we will put a a, a, a special I'm gown like make just one like that. Out of, how about you make a bean bag out of it? Be hopping down the streets, hundred percent, hundred percent virus free. 
Wow. Sounds like sounds like you got a plan for how you can fix all this. Yeah. I look forward to I look forward to working with you. Thanks, Taiji. Yeah, I love the images Taiji's using here, thinking of the virus, uh, comparing it to something that's like literally walking down the street, and uh, what Dr. Dana was talking about earlier about wearing all this stuff protects you from from uh, letting that into your body. But you know, definitely, it is hot. Sounds like it'd be really hot. So. Those were the main questions about uh, questions about treating patients who have COVID and questions about personal protective equipment that came up. Uh, we had a couple of other questions, uh, personal questions. Kennedy, you're on again. Do you want to go ahead and read your question, Kennedy? Unmute yourself. I accidentally left the meeting. That's okay. That's all right. No big deal. Uh, we have some other questions. Kennedy, uh, let's let's give Kennedy a quick shout out. Kennedy asked the most questions and a lot of creative, interesting questions. So Kennedy, do you want to ask your first question here on this list? I want to ask, are you scared when like do, you do surgeries? <laughs> that is a good question. It's a great question. It's a great question. The first thing I'll say is I am not a surgeon. So we have different teams that do different things in the hospital. My job is an emergency physician. So I stabilize people. I make sure that people, uh, that people who come in who are really sick, who are really having trouble, uh, are stable enough and I keep them alive long enough for them to get to another team that's gonna take care of the big problems. So some of those people are surgeons um, and those are people who, who actually use knives and, and, uh, and other tools to cut open the body and fix things that have gone wrong and then sew it back up. And some of those people are medical doctors who function, or specialists, who function by using various medicines or machines or chemicals to help heal the body and let the body heal too. Uh, both of those are very important and both of those are very necessary. But for my purposes, I have done surgeries. I had to do it while I was training. And I have a little bit of surgery that we have to do in the emergency room every now and then because somebody needs it before I can get the surgeons to come down. So in general, I will answer the question, am I scared in general? And the answer is absolutely. There are times when I feel very uncomfortable and, and it's, a pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty scary environment to be in. But I have a really good team and I have a lot of support and I have spent enough time in that environment to feel comfortable. So. I know how to, I can work with my fear. That doesn't mean that I'm not scared. It just means that I am able to work with my fear and that I have support when I need it to go over and ask a friend for help or ask a colleague for help or even call somebody else who knows how to do something better than me. Um, and it's, it's really important to recognize those, that fear when you have it, acknowledge it, and then move through it. And it's, it's okay to be afraid. It's also okay to work through that fear and it's also okay to ask for help. That's something that we all have to learn early on in medicine. And it's something that a lot of doctors spend some, a lot of time struggling with. And many of them succeed and we learn how to ask for help when we need it. All right. Okay, Zintra, uh, you have a question up here. Uh, do you want to ask uh, your question? Zintra. Is it hard to work right now? It can be. Um, it's similar to, it's, it's a, another, a, another great question. It builds on what, what Kennedy had said before, but um, there are moments when it's very hard to work. Uh, we have to make some really tough decisions. We have to deal with, a, there, there are moments where we had to deal with a lot of patients who were sick at the same time, and we had to try and direct teams to take care of multiple patients who really needed assistance. Um, 
And there were times where we really didn't feel supported by uh, people in leadership positions. Uh, that included people in the government, and in some cases, some of us didn't feel supported by the hospital administration. And in many cases, we did pull together. So the hospitals have really been very helpful in stepping up to help keep us safe. And the state government, uh, in New York State at least, has done a very good job of that. Um, other places have not. And so it's been hard to work with that, with feeling unsupported. It's been hard to work when you have to make these tough decisions and we work long hours. It's been, uh, it's a stressful place to be. But again, we've had teams of people that have been working together and we rely on each other to make sure we all get through this. And some people really struggle and some people can't get through it. And in that case, we offer them as much support as they need. And sometimes we need to take care of ourselves too and our, and our colleagues. Kind of reminds me of a lot of what's going on in our, in our school, where, how we support each other. And I want to just quickly read what Ms. Saratomsky wrote. She said, just like our heart's value of responsibility, having fears and showing courage to work through and show resiliency, uh, and you know, showing our teamwork, um, our teamwork value. Uh, T is for teamwork in our heart's values and uh, getting through all these stress, uh, stressful situations by supporting each other. It reminds me a lot of what we're doing here uh, in, the class, in the classroom and in our school community. So let's see, we're up with Kennedy. Kennedy, can you unmute your microphone and would you mind reading all four of these questions at once and then Dr. Dana will work. Would, would that work for you? That's fine. Okay, we can go great. through it. Kennedy, can you read all four questions? But what about the questions about surgery? You already told us that you don't do surgery. Well, we can talk. Well, he'll, he'll answer all that. Kennedy, are you on? Is that Kennedy's voice I hear? Mm-hmm. Okay, Kennedy. Yeah, it's my voice. Go ahead and read all your questions. So the first one is, when you do surgery, do, do the people see? And do you do it with babies? And what does blood smell like? And do you cut bones? <laughs> Such great curiosities. They're great. They're what great what wonderful curiosities for a doctor. And go ahead and mute your microphone again. Thanks. All right. So, uh, so get to that first one. Uh, so I do, I do some elements of surgery. So I'm not in the, in the operating room at all. I work in the emergency room but there are some surgeries that we do perform. And I have performed surgery during training because it's required for every, everybody that goes through med school. And in my case in particular, we had to do surgery in the operating rooms as part of our training. And it depends on the surgery we're doing. So some surgeries, patients will be awake and they will see. Uh, if I'm doing a minor surgery, like I'm just removing a tiny thing on somebody's arm or we're draining an infection out of somewhere, or I'm, if I'm operating on certain parts of the body, including and this is kind of a weird one. If we operate on the brain, many times the patients are awake and they're able to see and talk to us while we're doing it because that's the only way we know if we're working on the right part of the brain. So that's a weird one, but we do that. So sometimes the patients can see. Um, most of the time when we think of surgery, we put people under, under an anesthesia. We basically make them go to sleep and give them pain medication so they don't feel anything and they don't see anything. And then later on, when the surgery is done, they wake up and they can heal on their own after the surgery is completed. Mm -hmm. And we do that because, in general, you don't want to see what's inside your body. And you don't want to feel what it feels like to have surgery. <laughs> so that's where, that's, come that's where that comes from. Yeah, I remember last year when I broke my foot and they had to do surgery to put my bones back together. And they 
put me under and it was like taking a really weird nap. And then I woke up and, uh, you know, I had to let that all heal. Uh, the next one is, do you deliver babies? And the answer to that one is sometimes. Uh, we do a little bit of everything in the emergency room. And as part of my training, I definitely was uh, worked in the labor and delivery floor where most of the babies are delivered. And so I've done it. It's, uh, it's something that we try to avoid doing in the emergency room, but we, uh, I have done it. It happens. And sometimes people just can't get to the labor and delivery floors. Uh, the most... The most exciting delivery I ever did was when I was working on ambulances and we couldn't even get into the hospital. So we had to deliver the baby in the back of the ambulance. Baby was in a hurry. Yeah, that baby really <laughs> wanted to come out. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's part of our, our skill set that I have to be ready and able to do that in case it needs to be done. I have a friend who helps deliver babies as a specialty and she always sings happy birthday to the baby on the day that they're born. Yeah, that, that's, that's a thing. <laughs> I have a question about the baby thing. You, you, you delivered a baby while in the ambulance? Yeah, I while did. While in the ambulance? Yeah. Well, why was, well, why was it safe? Well, we try to make it as safe as we can. So for that particular instance, you can think of an ambulance as sort of an, a miniature one-patient emergency room. Um, it's safer when you have access to all of the facilities in a hospital, but most of the time you don't need those facilities. And if we needed to get to the hospital, we could put on the lights and sirens and drive to the hospital. And in fact, we were driving as this was happening. So all I did was sit there and make sure that the baby was protected as it was being delivered. And we basically make sure that as we're, you know, everybody needs to be wearing a seatbelt in an ambulance. So the real challenge was figuring out how to put a, ba a seatbelt on a baby in the middle of its delivery. So that was, that was the challenge that we were struggling with. Let's go to the next couple questions Kennedy asked. So it sounds like, to summarize, that's not Dr. Dana's area of expertise, but sometimes it happens in an emergency, and, yeah. and he's there to help. The, last, the next one was, I think you said, what does blood smell like? Well, <laughs> depends on how much of it there is. Most of the time, you don't smell it. But if you've ever cut yourself, that's what blood smells like. Um, and it, it's a little bit of a of a metallic scent. Um, so almost... Um, Is that because there's metal in your blood? You know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. I would think that's the case. Uh, <laughs> there is metal in your blood. Your blood is red because it contains iron. Um, and the iron oxide <laughs> that is in the blood is similar to rust. Rust is iron oxide. Um, and this is a very specific um, iron molecule that's supported inside of a special, a special uh, cushion inside the blood. We call that heme, and hemoglobin is the protein that contains it. So that molecule is red, and that's why you see it. But um, it smells it, it's a, it smells a little bit like metal, and that may be because there's iron in it. I, I really All don't right. know. And we're going to keep this last one as light as possible, because <laughs> it's kind of a funny, but maybe a little... We, um... We try, the, the question is, do you cut bones? And uh, the answer to that is we, we try very hard not to. <laughs> Most of the time we're trying to put bones back together rather than take them apart. But there are instances where, yes, we'll cut bones. And uh, particularly uh, the specialty that does that is orthopedics, orthopedic surgery. So, and sometimes if I need to fix the bone, I need to cut away parts that aren't healing well or um, that are in the way of an injury and I can fix those or put some metal structures inside of that to help heal it. Um, 
So sometimes we do need to cut bones, but it's something we try not to need to do. All right. All right, everybody. I remember uh, Andrew saying that he had a question. Uh, Andrew, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? I am. Okay, Andrew, go ahead. Um, how you guys COVID don't have? Are you asking how do you know if people have COVID and how do and if and how do we know if people don't have it? Is that what you're asking? Yes. Okay. The short answer is that we take a sample from where the the COVID virus lives, and that's usually in the nose, inside the some of the snot that comes out of your nose or the saliva, the spit in your mouth. Um, we'll take that sample and we will put it into a machine that can amplify the virus to the extent that we, 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 we can start to see it. If it's there, it gets amplified. If it's not there, it doesn't get amplified. So that's what we call, the test is called a PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reaction. And all that means is we just take pieces of the virus and amplify it. We make it as big as possible so we can see it. And that's, what, that's the test that we generally use. Uh, there are a couple of other types of tests that use chemicals that are attracted to the virus or that change in some way that when they encounter the virus, and we use those to uh, detect it. And the other way that we can do it is we look for the body's reactions to it. So in some cases, the simplest test is you look for the body's reaction to the disease, and we think that that might be, and that could be whether you have a cough or sore throat. And that's not very good at detecting it because a lot of things can give you those. Um, but another thing we can do is draw some of the blood out and look for the chemicals that your, or the molecules that your body produces in, in the event that it counters this virus. And that's, those chemicals are called antibodies. And we can look for those antibodies. And if you have them, then we know that you've been exposed to the virus. And we have to then try and figure out a little bit about what that means. That test is still being evaluated and it's a little more complex, but, um, that's what we do is we basically do a test to see if you have it. Um, and most of the time, uh, before you even need that test, I look at you and say, I think you may have this virus. And then we decide you need to do the test. Or I think you don't have this virus and we don't need to. But one of the big problems we run into that I know somebody had mentioned in the chat is that uh, a lot of people don't show any symptoms at all. So they can be carrying this virus and then sometimes they can be spreading it. But we have no way to tell by looking at them if they have it. We have to do a test. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the big reasons why we need to do testing to pick it up. It's also one of the big reasons why we've asked everybody to stay home. Because if I don't know that you have it, I have to ask you to stay away from everybody else so that you don't give it to them. Mm. Um, I have a another one. Mm -hmm. um, but then now that, now that you figure if that person has it, how do you take it out? Well, it's similar to what we said before. We let the body mostly heal itself. I don't have a way to take it out yet. We have a lot of people working on that. Um, most of what it is is you're, you will fight this infection off on your own if you ever get it. Uh, but sometimes the body gets under too much stress to be able to fight it off without help. So we yeah. help the body. We help support you. Or not you, but the, in general, we help support people with this virus. Uh, so that their body can fight it off and we keep them alive long enough that their body can fight off the infection on its own. Well, then we, then COVID isn't a, then COVID isn't a worry if we can just fight it off. 
sometimes people need a lot of support. And sometimes even with all that support, people can't fight it off. And that happens oh. a lot more with this virus than we'd like it to. But uh, I think it's also, it sounds like it's important to remember that the strongest thing that fights the virus is your body's own uh, systems. And the best thing that we can all do is support our bodies and support each other to stay safe. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Um, Ethan asked if he could ask a question. He wrote in the chat box, Ethan, are you on? I know that we've had some mic problems in the past. Ethan, can you hear me? All right. Well, uh, just in case maybe his microphone's not working, he did type in the chat box and we are recording this. Um, so Ethan asked, how long did you go to school to be a doctor? I went to school for a really long time. Um, so I went through uh, high school and then I went to college, which is four years. And then I went to medical school, which is four years. And then I went to residency, which is four years. And then I did a second residency, which was two years. So we have to add that up. That's four plus four plus four plus two. So that's almost 14 years. Incidentally, that's about twice as long as these kids have been alive. Do all doctors lifetime doing that? It's a hard a it's a time. it's a long time and it's a hard thing to learn. So to be good at this, you really need to study hard and spend a lot of time learning. Do uh question a quick follow-up question is uh do all doctors go to school for four and four and four and two years, just about fourteen years? Well, not all of us, but the majority of people will go to school between I think the minimum you would need is about 12 years, uh, maybe, maybe 11 years. So 11 to 14 is probably about where most people are. Interesting. All right. Some of us, some of these questions that are up there, uh, we did kind of uh, talk about in the answering the other questions. Um, I'm going to quickly uh, just open it up um, uh, to some of the adults in the meeting. Um, I have a question. All right. You're on. Um, I was wondering about how many hours per week you're working now with the COVID going on. Uh, it, it varies. Uh, at the peak of this thing, I was probably working about 90 hours a week. Uh, right now, uh, most of my, I spend probably about 40 or 50 hours. And not all of it's in the emergency room, though. I do a lot of research stuff on the outside. Uh, let's see. I saw that age, uh, Leilani had a question. I think you can see if you share, if you look at my screen, I'm highlighting it here. Uh, Leilani, are you on? Can you unmute yourself, Leilani? How does people get the virus if they don't touch dirty stuff? Hmm. Well, it can be transmitted by a couple of different things. So sometimes that's because you touch something that's contaminated. Um, and sometimes it comes just because somebody coughs. So every time you cough or sneeze, or even with breathing, remember the virus lives in your mouth and nose, so you can blow that virus out into the air, and then somebody else can breathe that in. So think of it every time, you, if, if somebody around you has bad breath and you can smell that bad breath, that's because that person is blowing out some of the bacteria or normal things that live in their mouth, and you are inhaling it that way. So it doesn't, doesn't stay around in the air all the time. It's not floating out in everywhere. What it's doing is it's coming out of somebody's mouth. It lives for a short time in the air, and then it generally falls down and sits on a surface. So it's not everywhere, but it's, it's one of those sorts of things. So you can either touch it and then touch your face or 
put your hand in your mouth or eat some food, that's one way. Or if you happen to be around somebody that exhales it or sneezes it or coughs it out, and then you inhale it yourself, that's how you get it. All right. Um, we have a couple more minutes, and I want to just give people a, a chance if they haven't had a, a chance yet to speak. So uh, Crockett, can you go ahead and have your question? Can you ask your question, Crockett? My, actually, my mom has a question. All right. Hi. Thank Hi, you Karen. for doing this. Of course. Hello. And thank you for your service. And um, please stay safe and healthy. Um, Thanks. We, our question for you is you mentioned uh, doing research outside mm -hmm. of uh, work. And what is the topic of that research, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, not at all. Um, so a lot of the research that I am personally doing is related. Uh, some of it's related to the virus and some of it isn't. The related stuff is I'm trying to work on ways that we can detect the people who don't have symptoms, so asymptomatic carriers. I, I have a project in the works to try to figure that out. Um, and another one is to try to figure out at what point do people start shedding the virus. So we know that some people start shedding this virus or transmitting it before they have symptoms. And it looks like a lot of people, uh, when you're exposed, there's a, there's a point where you're not shedding it and then there's a point where you start. So I want to figure out where that is, and that's the other project that I'm working on related to the virus. Um, some of the other work that I do is related to um, space and aviation. I work, uh, part of the work I do is with NASA, so we we're trying to develop uh, medical systems for deep space flight. That work hasn't stopped, so that continues, and I continue to support them and, and uh, work in that team as well. Wow, that sounds fascinating and very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting right. stuff. How do you make it mute, honey? All right. Thank you. You're sure welcome. Thing. All right, it's 1040. I can't tell who that was. It's Rayshawn. Hi, Rayshawn. What's up, dude? Does everybody in the state have to be tested for the virus? Hmm. Hmm. That's a really good question. Uh, the short answer to it is not everyone, but most people will. So we don't know who has it, and we don't know where it is. So in order for us to understand where it is, we have to do um, a very like carefully planned testing method. And we don't have to test everybody, but we've got to test very carefully chosen groups. Um, and, 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 we use, and, the, and the process we use for that is called random uh, or randomization. And it's a special process where you choose people uh, of every, in, in every area and you make sure that you're not over-selecting one area or one um, group of people over another, you have to test everybody and you have to test a sample from each population. Um, and then if we know where the virus is, we can target our testing more in that space and we can continue to do the random sampling around the state. That's, it's a very complex problem and it's something that we have entire, uh, entire training fields and, and specialists and careers are built around it. Um, but that's the issue. Yes, it involves math. So. Uh, it sounds like it would be great if we could test everyone, but it's such a huge, enormous project that we have to mm -hmm. do our best to use what we have to get the best scientific uh, data yeah. that will give us the information. And guys, I just want to say thank you to everybody for participating in this. I know that there are lots more questions, and I, I know that we're not going to be able to get through them all. So uh, just to follow up on one, 
Dr. Dana said that he does some work with NASA and not everybody knew what NASA was. So I just want to quickly just make sure that that is there. And then I want to give Dr. Dana a chance to uh, just kind of uh, say what he wants to say before the end of the meeting. Uh, so the, the quick answer for that, NASA is, an, is a, an acronym. It stands for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And it is a government agency that looks into understanding our place in the universe and figuring out how to get people to travel through space to either work in Earth orbit or on the moon or go to Mars. So I am part of the team that's helping us figure out those questions and get us uh, to travel beyond living on one planet to others. Um, that's what NASA does, that's that research. The, uh, <clears throat> the other thing that I would just like to say about this stuff is I want to thank all of you guys because you've been working really hard to stay at home and keep everybody, uh, keep everybody safe. So um, actually that, there was a, another typed question that I think is very relevant to this but says, uh, do you think it's too early to reopen restaurants, stores, and movies? That's a really tough question. I think in some areas, it might, be, it might start to be looking like it's okay. But we need to be really careful about it. And we need to be aware that sometimes, even if we open it up, we may need to, we may, we need to be very careful about watching what the virus is doing. And we may need to go re-quarantine later um, if we start seeing that it's rising up too much and we're seeing too many cases. So... It's going to take a lot of work on all of our parts, but we can do this. And we're actually, look at what's happened. We've, we've brought this under control. Even just by, just by isolating ourselves and putting up with all of this disruption, we've brought this under control. And now we have an opportunity to figure out what the right way and the best way to open things up is. And sometimes that, a lot of times that's going to involve testing. And sometimes that's going to involve re-isolating. And sometimes that's going to involve being really vigilant around people that are higher risk. Some people are at higher risk than others. Um, and it's going to basically be about protecting each other. So we have to be careful and watch out for each other and, and, uh, and stay alert to whatever, what's happening with everybody else's lives. And there are other challenges, like all of this isolation causes other problems, and we have to be aware and vigilant about those too. But right now, in this moment, the virus is still here. We need to be really careful about opening things up, but I think we can start thinking about and talking about the best ways of how to do that. And as long as we're careful, and as long as we keep paying attention and listening to what's happening here and around the world and around the country, I think we can start to do this pretty safely. It just requires us to pay attention and to make sure that we take care of each other at the same time that we look out for our own needs. I'm seeing again a connection to some of our heart's values one of our heart's values and responsibility is using logic and values when we make decisions. And it sounds like there's a lot of people who are supporting each other in the medical field and in all of the essential workers, and even in the non-essential workers who are doing their best to stay at home. Everybody's doing what they can and everybody's really pitching in in this moment in history to use logic and values to make those decisions and keep everybody as safe as possible. We talk a lot about exploration on this show, and it's worth remembering that all of us begin life as explorers. This planet we think we know so well was once as alien to us as any science fiction locale. 
It's worth reminding ourselves that exploration isn't about where we go in the world so much as how we view the world already around us. These children sharing and viewing and experiencing the world without judgment, without an agenda, is one of the best examples of the exploration mentality I've encountered. They remind us that we are the ones who color our experiences. The world will happen to us no matter what. It's up to us to choose how we view it. The answer to that last question about opening up and is it too soon is complex and nuanced. It's also the most important question we currently face and will require a careful, reasoned approach, pulling in experts from multiple fields. We must account for the physical, psychological, cultural, and economic well-being of each community, and each area will have different levels of threat in each of those categories, so there is not a one-size-fits-all answer. The answer I gave to these students is focused on New York City, and it may also apply to some other cities that have expanded testing capabilities and successfully brought the virus under control. However, in other areas of the country, this virus is still very much not under control, and many of those areas do not have sufficient testing to even detect the viral spread. One thing I can say is that without appropriate testing and contact tracing to detect the spread of the virus, it is not possible to contain it without strict and long-lasting social and physical isolation. Ignoring that will cost us many thousands of lives. This is a moment where putting aside differences and trusting people who have spent their lives studying these kinds of challenges is critical. So just as these seven-year-olds dressed as grocery workers and doctors to honor essential workers, I want to ask all of us listening to this podcast to honor them. Let's put on our teachers' clothes or our learners' clothes and model those lessons from Mr. Ramirez's classroom, the ones about sharing, cooperating, trusting, learning, and exploring together. Let's make sure those children continue to grow up, and let's make sure their grandparents, parents, and other family members get to be there with them. We can make this world a better place. Let's tap into that explorer's spirit and see just how far we can go. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so we can update you directly when we post a new episode. Music is written and recorded by David Keough and is available on the web at ReverbNation.com slash David Keough. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on our own website, ExplorationMedicine.com. As always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Stay safe, explorers, and see you soon. Guess what I am? What? Oh, yep, doctor, doctor. Guess what I have? I have heart monitor. I have a thermometer. And I have that thing that you use. Oh, those things squeeze my arms really good. That you use I have one drawing like and I'm going to it to myself. Every time, I go to the doctor like almost like every month. And I always you have, have to, to do it every year. Arm.